there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1928, Alfred Lowenstein, the third richest man in the world, went missing but despite his esteemed status and extreme wealth, his official investigation ended in 24 hours without a trace of his body. When his body was finally found, his wife buried him in an unmarked grave. His many businesses continued to grow, and the world kept spinning. Even today, few people know about the disappearance of Alfred Lowenstein. But why? What secret force stopped the disappearance of a man worth $53 million from becoming the crime of the century? Why is this mystery still a mystery? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries from Parcast. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast or Twitter at Parcast Network and at Parcast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our second and final episode on the sudden disappearance of prestigious entrepreneur and businessman Alfred Lowenstein. Last week, we explored the official timeline of his death, this week, we'll be looking at the chief suspects behind his unexplained disappearance as we find the most plausible solution to his sudden end. As you may recall from our last episode, Alfred was flying as a passenger in his new Fokker F7A 3M monoplane on July 4, 1928. He and four of his trusted assistants were on their way from Croydon Airport in London to Brussels. The trip began at 6 p.m. and was expected to last a few hours, but it never reached its destination. About an hour into the flight, the plane was cruising over the English Channel. Alfred entered the restroom cabin at the back of the plane. He was gone for 10 minutes before his personal secretary checked on him. 
his secretary broke the door open to find that Alfred was gone. In just over ten minutes, the third richest man in the world had vanished. He would never be seen alive again. The official explanation for the sudden disappearance was that Lowenstein fell out of the aircraft accidentally. There was a second door in this monoplane leading from the bathroom cabin outside. The four assistants and two pilots on board assumed that is how he died. But as we covered last week, it would be impossible for one person to open the door while the plane was mid-flight. The passenger would have to single-handedly push against a 225-horsepower engine and a slipstream of 110 knots. Airline officials tried to recreate Alfred's accident, but they were unable to do so. It took several men working in unison to open the door of the plane. If the employees said that Alfred had fallen out of the plane by accident, one of them was lying. One of them was a murderer. We'll now take each of the primary suspects in turn as we explore their darker motives. In this crime, there are seven possible masterminds. Donald Drew, the womanizing pilot, Robert Little, the esteemed mechanic, Arthur Hodgson, Alfred's male secretary, Eileen Clark and Paula Bidelon, the two stenographers on board, Fred Baxter, Alfred's faithful valet, finally, Alfred's wife, Madeline Lowenstein. One of them, or several of them, were not as innocent as their title would suggest. The first potential culprit was the pilot, Donald Drew. According to William Norris in the novel The Man Who Fell from the Sky, Drew's personality could best be described as life of the party. He had a sense of humor, a contempt for authority, and a story for every occasion. But he was far from perfect. Drew was a rampant womanizer, often sleeping with the female passengers that he ferried through the sky. Throughout the 1920s, it was common for planes to make overnight stops at airports for long journeys. And it was during those stops that Drew would make his moves on the ladies. Drew was a drinker and sometimes flew with a bottle in the cockpit. He drank while he flew because he had stomach cancer and the constant pain was softened by the scotch. That said, there are a couple of reasons why theorists believe this scoundrel of the sky may have been Alfred's murderer. The first has to do with Drew's mysterious landing. As you may recall, Drew chose to land the plane on the French coast adjacent to the English Channel the moment he heard about Alfred's disappearance. This was odd because San Anglavera Airport was just five minutes away from the spot where Drew brought the plane down. But Drew chose to land the aircraft near steep sand dunes where visibility was limited. It seemed like an odd place to land. He also didn't notify any authorities that Alfred had vanished. A radio was available to contact air towers in this plane, but Drew chose not to use this emergency tool. In Drew's defense, he might have been in shock. A passenger disappearing is one of the worst-case scenarios for a commercial pilot. He may have wanted to land the plane to get the full story before he flew to an airport. But he was also a seasoned flyer and should have known to alert authorities. If he did phone ahead, the investigation could have begun immediately, and he would have saved precious hours. Drew's co-pilot, Robert Little, seems equally suspicious. 
He was the airplane's official mechanic and had an excellent track record in airline safety. Little's interest in flying began in his late teens. Because he was too young to enlist in the military, he and his brother saved their pennies and bought an Avro 504 biplane. At just over 29 feet in length, this plane was miniature by today's standards, but it allowed Little and his brother to charge locals for joyrides up and down the countryside of London. It was here that Little inevitably gained his experience as a flyer and ultimately what allowed him to receive his navigator certificate in his mid-twenties. You heard us right. He received his license after his joyride enterprise. He was flying for the first few years of his life completely illegally. Once he had the license, Little joined the Imperial Airways in 1923 and officially began his career as a commercial pilot. This is also where he met Donald Drew and developed a fast friendship. Both of them were vivacious and living the highest life of the 1920s as pilots. But theorists point to a peculiar development after Alfred's disappearance that might frame Little as a killer. Following Alfred's death, it seems Little came into a large sum of money. Although he was only living on a pilot's salary, which was around $500 a month, Little somehow found the funds to form his own aviation consulting business in London shortly after Alfred's death. He also bought a house in the heart of Paris, which according to William Norris's book, The Man Who Fell from the Sky, had a pillared living room with an ornamental pool. This would have cost tens of thousands back in 1928. Both of these properties were bought about a year after Alfred's death in 1929. Drew also saw a significant jump in finances following Alfred's death. He bought a spacious apartment in Alexandria, Egypt, and lived the rest of his life flying and fornicating around the world. According to the theorists, this sudden spring in fortune came from the blood money that Drew and Little received for killing Alfred Lowenstein. Under this theory, a jaded business partner or financial rival of Alfred hired Drew and Little as hitmen to dispose of the world's third richest man. The money they received from the murderer explains their sudden financial gain. That said, this growth in Drew's and Little's finances is the only source of proof for this theory. And sure, they may have been involved, but it's possible the funds came from a myriad of other places. An inheritance, for instance, would provide the same sharp spike in money. But it's unlikely that both of them would receive sizable inheritances at the same time. It's hard to make a call. The great challenge in explaining this mystery is the lack of concrete facts. It's good to keep an open mind when hearing the details of these theories. There's also an obvious problem with Drew and Little being the murderers. At the time of Alfred's disappearance, Drew and Little were flying the plane. None of the other passengers, besides Alfred himself, had flying experience. Additionally, there was a glass partition separating the pilots from the rest of the cabin. According to the diagram of Alfred's monoplane that is available online, once the plane was in the air, it would be impossible for the pilots to enter the passenger cabin area. That is, unless they rigged the second door to open when Alfred entered the bathroom. As pilots, they had unlimited access to the plane before Alfred came on board. It's possible they spring-loaded the door's hinges to make them easier to open. But the pilots were not the only suspicious passengers on board the monoplane. 
One of Alfred's employees may have conspired against their master and murdered him in cold blood. They sat next to Alfred as the plane took off and watched him read peacefully as their evil plan grew in their mind. And when he least expected it, they threw him off the plane. After this, we'll look into a possible conspiracy. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. Alfred Lowenstein loved to work. This was why four assistants were traveling with him on the evening of July 4, 1928. But one or more of these loyal assistants may have conspired to kill Alfred that night. This brings us to our next suspect, Mr. Arthur Hodgson. He was Alfred's personal male secretary. He sported a neat mustache, pinstripe suit, and carried an umbrella with him almost everywhere he went. His peers described him as suave and superficial, but Hodgson never seemed to notice as he spent the better part of his life trying to impress those around him. This made him showy to others and often ingenuine. Professionally, Hodgson was primarily in charge of arranging Alfred's schedule. If there was a business meeting or business outing that needed planning, Hodgson was the man behind the time and place. He had intimate knowledge of Alfred's business relationships and a full understanding of Alfred's affairs. But despite his prestigious and important position, Hodgson seemed rather inadequate for the job. According to Norbert Bogdan, another one of Alfred's employees, Hodgson was a lousy secretary. He was rather naive and not up to standard as a professional secretary. He went further to say Hodgson was a nice boy, but very primitive and not a bit smart. If we are to believe this testimony, Hodgson was a peculiar choice for Alfred's personal secretary. We don't know why or how Hodgson was selected to head Alfred's affairs, but Alfred appeared to be content with him at the helm. The most incriminating evidence against Hodgson is his own eyewitness testimony. As we mentioned, the passengers on board the aircraft believed Alfred accidentally fell out of the monoplane. This fact was proven impossible by repeated attempts by professional pilots after the disappearance. Regardless, Hodgson was the leading voice in the theory that Alfred fell out accidentally. When questioned by the authorities on the night of the disappearance, Hodgson was sure that Alfred's death was accidental. In every interview that we could find, Hodgson was convinced that Alfred had made a mistake. Now again, Hodgson's stance could be the result of shock or denial. 
His employment through the Lowenstein family had been his source of income for many years. Assuming Alfred's death was an accident might have been the only way Hodgson could make sense of the situation. Especially if Hodgson wasn't the brightest secretary in the world, as Bogdan was clear to say. In fact, Bogdan publicly defended Hodgson in the same interview. He said, quote, For a man to plan and execute a murder for gain calls for some kind of mental agility and sharpness. I certainly didn't see that in Hodgson, end quote. He didn't believe Hodgson had the resolve to be a murderer, but that might have been the perfect cover of the perfect crime. Maybe. That said, Hodgson still could have been involved in the crime. If not the mastermind, he might have helped hold the door or assisted in shoving Alfred out the window. If Hodgson was paid to be silent about the murder, that could explain why he was so insistent that Alfred died accidentally. Maybe this was the only version of the truth the real murderer wanted him to say. We don't know if Hodgson came into a mysterious amount of money like the two pilots. It's certainly possible, but there's no documentation to back this up. As we mentioned, this lack of details is what makes this case so difficult to solve. As it happened almost a hundred years ago, we have few resources to give us any concrete evidence. This lack of information culminates with what we know about the two stenographers in the passenger's cabin, Eileen Clark and Paula Bidelon. Finding their names was difficult. Learning any facts about their lives or personalities was absolutely impossible. What we do know is that these two women were two of the best shorthand secretaries living in London at the time. They were highly trusted and respected by Alfred, and they assisted in translating all the short notes that Alfred wrote. We also know that Clark and Bidelon supported the theory that Alfred fell out of the plane accidentally. Once again, this could be the result of blood money or threats, but that is pure speculation. If one or both of these two women knew the secret to Alfred's death, it died with them many years ago. The world received no follow-up interviews or statements from these women. In fact, we don't even know if they continued to work for the Lowenstein family after his death. Whatever happened to them, they undoubtedly carried the weight of that evening for the rest of their lives. This leaves us with just one remaining assistant who was in the passenger cabin with Alfred Lowenstein, a man that was the most trusted of all, Alfred's most adored and respected personal valet, Fred Baxter. As you may recall, Baxter's most distinguishing characteristic was his short stature. He was described by many of his friends as being short enough to be a horse jockey. Unlike many of the other suspects in the airplane, Baxter comes from very humble beginnings. He was born in the late 1890s on Regent Street, where he worked as a street urchin, begging up and down the alleys of London. But Baxter's street life came to an end when he happened to find employment through the Lowenstein estate as a boot boy. As the name would suggest, Baxter was entrusted with cleaning and polishing the family's shoes. It was through these many shoes that Baxter slowly worked his way up the ranks of Lowenstein's assistants. Alfred took note of his hard work when Baxter was young and decided to take him under his wing. Shortly afterwards, Baxter was promoted to the role of footman. He was now in charge of taking the newspapers up to Alfred's room and reading him the stock market numbers. Before long, the two men were inseparable. 
Alfred required Baxter on all of his most important business trips, and Baxter was rewarded with a sensational life. He flew across Europe and sailed around England. It would have been a remarkable life for anyone, but especially for the young man who had been a beggar not long before. After Alfred's death, Baxter remained a part of the Lowenstein family. He began to serve Alfred's only son, Robert Lowenstein. But Robert was not an easy master. Alfred's death hit Robert very hard. He was just 18 when Alfred died, and his life quickly fell apart as he spent his sizable inheritance on vices. According to William Norris, it was commonplace to see young women scurrying out of the bedroom windows of the Lowenstein's estate in various states of undress when Robert was home. Robert had his mother's looks and his father's relentless determination. The result was one of the most nefarious playboys in London at the time. As the son of a millionaire, Robert didn't need to work, and he never tried. Instead, he spent his days crashing sports cars and drinking as much champagne as he could. Whether Baxter disapproved of his new master's lifestyle, he never said. Instead, he continued to serve the family he loved. In fact, the two men were described as more friends than master and servant, often drinking together and visiting the horse races. But this partnership came to a sudden bloody end on April 22, 1932. It was now four years after Alfred's disappearance, and Robert and Baxter were living comfortably in Paris at 6 Rue Antoine Bordel in Montparnasse. Prior to this date, neither Baxter nor Robert showed any sign of hostility toward each other. By all accounts, it was a happy life. On April 22nd, Baxter rose with the beautiful Parisian sun as he had so many days before. He dressed and entered Robert's room to begin his morning valet duties. The next two hours are undocumented. We don't know what these two men said to each other or why, but we do know the result. Robert came running out of his apartment, panicked and scared. He found the nearest authorities and told them that Baxter had just committed suicide in his room. According to the official report, Baxter was found lying on the floor of Robert's apartment with a gunshot wound in his right temple. But there were a number of problems with this story. First, the gun that killed Baxter was Robert's personal revolver, which was usually under lock and key in the glove box of Robert's car. A razor and a knife were also found in the room. But in theory, Baxter had instead chosen to leave the hotel room break into Robert's car, re-enter the room, and then shoot himself. Robert also paid the French police to keep the suicide away from the press. In fact, the only reason we know about Baxter's death is because Baxter's father learned about his son's death a few days later and reported it to the local papers. By the time the press released the news to the public, Robert had fled the country. He flew home to his mother in London and never returned to France for the rest of his life. Officially, Robert was not charged with murder. But objectively, it doesn't look good for the young trust fund playboy. He was the only one in his room at the time, and the murder weapon was his own revolver. But why would Robert kill a valet that was loved and trusted by his family? Well, according to the magazine Le Matin, Baxter finally came clean on Alfred's murder. 
Theorists believe that Robert couldn't handle the truth of Alfred's death and shot his once-trusted valet. According to this theory, either Baxter was the murderer or he knew which one of the assistants had killed Alfred. He couldn't handle the guilt after four years and spilled the truth to Robert. Now, this is a thrilling theory and a dramatically satisfying ending to Alfred's tale, but there are still a few facts missing for this story to be the perfect explanation. First and foremost, to believe this theory, we have to accept that Baxter was tortured by the secret of his previous master's death to the point that he needed to come clean. According to his co-workers, there was no indication that Alfred's death was weighing on his conscience. We also have to assume that the suicide note Baxter left behind was fabricated. Beside Baxter's body was a note that outlined the reason for his death. The note said the following, quote, Goodbye, sir. I recommend my friend Alexandre to replace me. Take him. He's a good man. Pay him well at least three times what you paid me. Your laundry is the first on the right going down the Avenue de Maine. In the future, don't drive so fast, for that's what ruined my nerves. I'm a coward, and I haven't got the pluck to face the consequences. Goodbye, sir. Fred. P.S. Don't drive so fast. End quote. As strange as this note seems, it was in Baxter's handwriting, so it was considered genuine by authorities at the time. That said, it is possible that Robert held Baxter at gunpoint and demanded that he write this will. But again, this is highly speculative on our part. This is the end of the list of passengers on the plane. But there was another family member in Alfred's life that may have been behind his murder from the beginning. As any good crime drama will tell you, the spouse of the victim is often the best place to look for the murderer. And Alfred's wife... Madeline Lowenstein certainly had reason to want Alfred dead. Coming next, we investigate Madeline Lowenstein. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. If Alfred Lowenstein's death was about money, his wife, Madeline, easily had the most to gain. At the time of his 1928 disappearance, Alfred was worth $53 million. That's over $3 billion by today's standards. According to Alfred's official last will and testament, this fortune was to be shared equally between his wife and his son. Because Robert was only 18 at the time of his father's death, Madeline was given control of Robert's trust 
until he was old enough. So, at the moment of Alfred's death, Madeline inherited everything. Because of this, her life changed very little. She continued to entertain the richest people in town at her indoor tennis courts. She paraded around horse races in fine clothes. And she continued to shop and fly around the world. According to William Norris's book, The Man Who Fell from the Sky, there was no lasting grief in the Lowenstein family after Alfred's death. As you may recall, the Lowensteins had a cold relationship, with some friends even calling it a marriage of convenience. Because of this, Alfred's absence had little effect on the remaining members of the Lowenstein family. But the most incriminating evidence for Madeline came with Alfred's corpse. As you may recall, Madeline was determined to find Alfred's body after his death. The reason for this was a legal one. At this time, a person could only be declared officially deceased if a body was produced. A last will and testament, such as Alfred's, had stipulations that the will could only be executed if the person were officially dead. Missing and presumed dead, in this case, was not good enough. If Alfred's body were not found, Madeline and Robert would not have been able to open Alfred's will and they would have lost everything, including their houses. At the time, a widow needed her husband's corpse to inherit his wealth. It wasn't enough for him to be missing. The court needed proof of death. So the same night that Alfred went missing, Madeline offered a reward of 5,000 francs for any fisherman that could find his corpse. A body was found, and Madeline opened her husband's will. But it might not have been Alfred's body. As you may recall, the body that was found in the English Channel was, quote, decomposed beyond recognition, end quote. In fact, the only reason the fishermen knew the corpse was Alfred Lowenstein's was because the body's wristwatch was engraved with his name. But this doesn't match what Alfred was wearing when he entered the bathroom in the monoplane. He was wearing a full business suit, and the only piece of clothing left in the plane was Alfred's collar and tie. The rest of his suit was gone. Now, it's possible that someone stole the suit off his corpse or it ripped off somewhere in the ocean. But it was odd to say the least. This has led some of the more radical theorists to believe that Madeline actually faked Alfred's corpse. Under this theory, Madeline knew she needed a body to open the will. So, she hired someone to collect a corpse from a morgue. They then gave that corpse one of Alfred's watches to prove it was him. This is a far-out theory, but there is a shred of evidence to support this case. After the body was recovered, there was no public autopsy. The only investigation that was ordered was done privately and for the Lowenstein family only. In fact, this post-mortem investigation was so mysterious that we don't know the head doctor's full name. Additionally, the body was buried below an unmarked tombstone, and Madeline didn't attend the funeral service. She said she was too sad to attend. But she wasn't too sad to attend the official opening of Alfred's will two days before the funeral. It's possible that Madeline engineered the corpse in the channel to win her husband's fortune. But even still, this doesn't prove that she's a murderer. She might have been shocked to hear about her husband's disappearance and then found a body to save the family fortune. 
That is, unless she killed her husband for someone else, someone she was longing to be with. It was no secret that Madeline and Alfred had a cold relationship. As we mentioned last week, both of them slept in different rooms and hardly ever ate together. Despite the abundant wealth in their family, it seemed romance was short. This has led radical theorists to believe that Madeline orchestrated Alfred's murder out of love. Under this theory, Madeline had grown tired of her husband and fallen in love with another man. The object of Madeline's desire was none other than the womanizing pilot, Donald Drew. That said, there is very little evidence to support this theory. Drew and Madeline had met on several occasions. Drew was Alfred's personal pilot, and Madeline was well acquainted with Alfred's staff. Both of them were also very attractive and charming. They no doubt would have liked each other's company. But that is really where the facts stop. There were no secret conversations between these two or any compromising photographs. At least not that were made public. When it comes to the facts, this theory is more wish fulfillment than anything. Drew and Madeline were also on completely different social ladders. Madeline really only interacted with the cushiest social circles, and it would be very out of character for her to fraternize with a monoplane pilot. Besides, after Alfred's death, Drew moved away from London and the Lowenstein family. If these two were having the love affair of the century, then why would Drew move away right after Alfred had died when they could finally be together? Sadly, we'll have to leave this theory for the shelves of romantic fiction. But it goes to show how far even small facts can take theorists. Now, thus far, we've been talking about the relationships and employees that belong to Alfred Lowenstein. But there is a side to him we have been neglecting. His business affairs. As you may recall, Alfred amassed a staggering fortune through his various enterprises. He began his career by selling securities and slowly worked his way to wealth by funding public transportation in Brazil. It was shortly after this success that he invested in yet another enterprise, artificial silk securities. Here, he was once again in charge of selling tradable bonds called securities. But Alfred was not the only starry-eyed businessman chasing this new frontier. He quickly developed a rival in the silk business, a Mr. Henry Dreyfus. Dreyfus was born in Basel, Switzerland in 1882 and quickly fell in love with chemistry and synthetic compounds. He loved the idea of making artificial replicants of delicacies like indigo or silk. Dreyfus realized he could make a quick profit with his invention, so he founded a company, Selenese Corporation, and began to sell his artificial silk to the world. Alfred saw Dreyfus's new enterprise and wasted no time in making a personal connection with him. He reached out to Dreyfus and offered to sell the securities behind Dreyfus's new product, but Dreyfus refused. As you may recall, Alfred was considered a tyrant in the business scene at this time. He was relentless in his enterprise and dominating in a business meeting, but it didn't help. Dreyfus was well aware of Alfred's attitude and wanted no part of it. He actually called Alfred a marauding financier behind closed doors. Unfortunately for Dreyfus, Alfred caught wind of this insult and the public battle that followed was long. For the rest of their lives, Alfred and Dreyfus made public jabs at each other. 
They wrote lies about each other in speeches and papers and regularly wrote each other insulting letters. This culminated in a public legal battle in which Alfred was going to sue Dreyfus for libel, but the trial never happened. Instead, Alfred died. It's possible that Dreyfus bribed Alfred's assistants into murder, both the pilots and the four assistants. This would explain the sudden rise in the pilot's income and Hodgson's strong stance in Alfred's accidental death. If offered enough blood money, it's possible that Alfred's loyal servants and friends could have turned on him. Although there's another side to this story that's less pessimistic and equally grandiose. Some theorists believe Alfred engineered his own death. With the threat of his legal battle with Dreyfus looming, Alfred may have paid off his staff to pretend that he disappeared. Then, once the plane landed on French soil, Alfred climbed out of the plane and hid among the sand dunes. After a few hours, he made his way off the beach and into a new life with a new identity. Under this theory, Alfred lived out the rest of his life away from the stress of his businesses and his cold marriage. The support for this theory goes back to the legal battle with Dreyfus. If Alfred was afraid he was going to lose the case, he might have wanted to disappear before a public failure. This explains the strange landing Drew made on French soil. Once again, he chose to land on a beach rather than the airport that was five minutes away. It would obviously be impossible for Alfred to sneak away in an airport, so he chose the sand dunes. Theorists also believe this explains the sudden rise in funds for the pilots and the confusion from the assistants. In this version, only the pilots knew about the plan and the assistants were left in the dark. But even still, Alfred was a radical type A personality. To believe this theory, we have to accept the fact that Alfred didn't want to work anymore. And if there is one fact we know about Alfred, it's that he loved his work. As you may have noticed, none of these theories quite fit the case, and that's largely why Alfred's death remains so unexplained to this day. For generations, theorists have been poring over the details of this case, spinning new theories and connections. But we did promise to leave you with the most plausible theory, and we'll be doing just that. Based on the information we were able to find, we believe the most likely end to Alfred's disappearance is a hybrid of the theories we discussed. If Alfred's major financial rival Dreyfus paid the four passengers and two pilots to kill Alfred, that would explain the sudden upturn in wealth for the pilots. This might also explain why Baxter was killed. If the extreme guilt caused him to share the truth with Robert, Robert might have turned on him. It would also explain Hodgson's firm stance on Alfred's accidental death. And it might also explain the panic Madeline felt after Alfred died and could have motivated her to fabricate the body. That said, although this theory does cover all the clues, it seems like one of the most impractical ways to kill someone. Any one of a number of things could have gone awry. The assistants could have backed out on the murder. Alfred could have learned about the operation, or Alfred might have canceled his business flight last minute. No matter which way you look at it, it's a highly theatrical way to murder someone. But that is still our official vote for this whodunit mystery. It's most likely that Henry Dreyfus murdered Alfred Lowenstein over the English Channel with a Fokker F7A3M monoplane. 
If this were the board game Clue, we would now reveal the true killer to the world. But unfortunately, life isn't always that simple. Alfred's death lives on in mystery as it has for generations. We will continue to wonder about those last 10 minutes of Alfred's life and propose our own theories. But the chase is one of the best parts of an unexplained mystery. And this one will keep us guessing. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Michael Herman and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.